And he said to me, well, your son is a candidate for Down syndrome and I hope you feel better. And he turned on his heel and he left. She proceeded to let me know of nothing that he would be able to do and everything that he would not be able to do. He just sat with us, he put his arm around me and he said, it's, it's confirmed. And he says, and you guys are gonna be the best parents. I didn't know anyone with Down syndrome. And I know it's because the exclusion of children with Down syndrome in the Catholic Church. Disabilities were not talked about. So the only experience I had with people with Down syndrome was seeing a group of them at the bus stop every morning. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Grieving process starts as soon as the diagnosis is given. They are receiving this diagnosis in a space that's not conducive to receiving life-altering news. Our stance is actually pro-information. Patients have the right to know all of their options. So, you know, parenting and adoption should be included. Stephanie Thompson is the mother of two sons, one of whom is 27 years old and has Down syndrome. She is also the director of the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network, NDSAN, whose mission is to ensure that every child born with Down syndrome has the opportunity to grow up in a loving family. Your son, Christopher, is 27 years old and has Down syndrome. And I listened to another interview with you on the podcast called The Lucky Few. Um, and I, it just struck me in that interview that you said something that I think is common for a lot of parents who receive a diagnosis like this, that you really vividly remember when your son received that diagnosis. What, what can you tell me about that time? What do you remember? Yes. And um, is it okay if I go back a bit now? Yes, absolutely. Um, right. Ahead. Because you actually, okay. your story kind of started earlier during pregnancy, right? Yes. Yes. So yes, I want to go back just a bit to an interesting story in my prenatal journey. I was diagnosed with hyperemesis um, gravidarum when I was eight weeks pregnant with Chris. And some weeks later, I can't recall the exact number of weeks, my obstetrician ordered a quad screen test. Um, I was 20 years old at the time for reference. And his reasoning for ordering the test was that he was very perplexed as to why I was so sick. Mm -hmm. I was admitted to the hospital quite a few times, and I had only gained four pounds post-birth. So he wanted to see if maybe the baby had an issue. And he said to me, well, the test came back negative. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, your baby doesn't have Down syndrome or spina bifida or anything like that. And I do remember saying to him, well, that's, not, that's because I'm not 40. Um, so I must have I must have heard that somewhere in my youth. Um, the myth that only older um, women have babies with Down syndrome. So fast forward to post birth, my obstetrician stops in my room the day after I'm told that they suspect that Chris had Down syndrome. And my OB told me that the quad screen actually came back one point outside of normal range. But he didn't think anything of it. I guess there's a huge range. And he was like, No, that can't be right. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't have um, produced a, a, a Down syndrome result. So I always thought that that was interesting to me. And to me, I thought it was a blessing because back when I was very, you know, when I was that young, I was worried about things that I didn't have mm -hmm. answers to. And the internet was not what it is today. And I would have, if I would have been given a prenatal diagnosis back in 1991, I think I worry, would have worried myself greatly. And I, that would have made me mm -hmm. critically ill. So, um, yeah, so the, the memory I have of Chris, um, of receiving Chris's diagnosis is what many, many call the flashbulb memory. Um, so that is where even after 27 years, that memory is still highly detailed, exceptionally vivid snapshot of the moment and the circumstance in which I was told that surprising and emotional mm -hmm. piece of news. So <clears throat> I will never forget it. Um, when Chris was born, he didn't cry and he was absolutely beautiful. And he just came out and looked at me with his big blue eyes. And with me being so young and this being my first birth, I just thought, oh, he's going to be a quiet baby. 
And, um, but behind me, which was my husband had let me live later, the nurses kept looking over him and looking over him and studying him. Um, so they your, eventually, your husband was picking up on the fact that the nurses were concerned about something. Yeah. Yes. He didn't tell me that until, um, uh, a few weeks later, actually, I think it was after mm-hmm. the confirmed blood test diagnosis of Down syndrome. So, yeah. So they, they eventually wheeled me to my room. They wheeled Chris to the nursery. My husband and my parents went home to sleep and, uh, I was awakened by a knock on my door and it was the hospital pediatrician and I had never met him before, but he asked me how I was doing. And I said, well, I was sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a tad cranky after being lab- in labor all night long. He said to me, well, your son is a candidate for Down syndrome and I hope you feel better. And he turned on his heel and he left. And right at that moment, my phone rang and out of instinct, I picked it up. It was right there on my tray and I picked up the receiver. I was crying my eyes out and it was my aunt and she said, what's wrong? And I said, Chris has Down syndrome. And I literally just hung up on her in my state of grief. And my husband went back to my parents' house and I called their house and my mom answered. And all I could say was, tell John to get here now. Chris has Down syndrome. And um, I started the grief, grief process right then. Um, a few minutes later, a nurse had come in with a packet of information on Down syndrome. And I remember she was so nice and she was trying to comfort me. And I remember at one point she said, oh, my neighbors have a daughter with Down syndrome and she can ride a bike. Um, and so I remember her being so very nice. But that, that doesn't seem I like a th- comforting thing to say at all <laughs> to a new mother. Yeah, <laughs> Right. I was just, I was actually in a state of grief. I can't, I was like, I can't um, think of any, I can't talk to anyone. I can't think, but, but she was really wanting, I think she was just because she was a nurse and she was seeing this mom grieving. Mm -hmm. And so, but I, I set the packet aside. I didn't want to read it. I did ask her to bring my son, Chris to me. I needed to see that he didn't look like he had a disability. I know that's really strange, but that's in my young mom thoughts. Mm -hmm. I just remember he was beautiful and I was thinking, no, you know, I wanted to make sure he had all fingers and toes. And, and, and so he, she brought him to me and he looked perfect. And I said to him, you know, I love you, Chris. And no matter what happens, I am always going to be here for you. And so then I was kind of in that denial part of the grieving, grieving process because I did not believe he had Down syndrome. Right. And what kind of, I, can, I mean, I can't believe that the, you know, I hear stories of where people are given diagnosis in a really insensitive way, which seems like it happens happened to you. But it's strange to me that it's like he woke you up to say hardly anything and leave and to <laughs> put that on you when, you know, you just woken up and your husband's not there. Like what, what was the next interaction you had with him or with genetics where you actually had testing done and got some more clarity as <clears throat> to that diagnosis? It's, it's a weird, it's strange wording to me too, that he would say he's a candidate for Down syndrome. Correct. And I, I, I'm wondering if he had to say that liability wise, because the, the blood mm-hmm. tests had not come back yet. So he, I'm wondering that. And um, now with that house pediatrician, Hmm. I never saw him again. So I didn't even know what his name was. Um, But so the, um, we, I was told, you know, well, at the, Chris had a postnatal diagnosis. So, and and that was based on, so before the blood test was um, confirmed, that was based on the fatty pad at the back of his neck, uh, the Palmer crease across the palm of his Mm -hmm. hand, which used to be called the simian crease. Um, but the terminology has been updated. The gap between his big toe and his second toe, him, he had low set ears. And medically, he started vomiting after his first feed. They did an x-ray and found that he had duodenoatresia, which is a common medical condition associated with Down syndrome, which is an intestinal obstructant that needed immediate surgery. So, um, but this is the part where my genetic counselor comes in. Um, the story. So later that evening after the hospital pediatrician came in with the suspected diagnosis, um, so I'm guessing that's why he said candidate, um, a genetic counselor visited me at my hospital room. And she let me know that Chris had a 76% chance of having Down syndrome. Oddly specific. Um, <laughs> yes, very oddly specific. I was like, okay. But the blood test, she told me the blood test would confirm it at 999 
and take about 10 days to come back. So she proceeded to let me know of nothing that he would be able to do and everything that he would not be able to do. So he would most likely not walk or talk. He would get to the age of four physically, and then he would stay at the age of four mentally for the rest of his life. Um, and yeah, and so that was what her information was. And I never wanted to see her again. Yeah. Um, and yeah, luckily the hospital gave us a copy of the book. There was a book called down syndrome, a new parent's guide. And the next day, my husband sat in the chair in my room and he read that book from cover to cover in four hours. And when he was done, he just said, okay, we can handle this. Everything's going to be okay. Um, I still wasn't ready to read any information and I wasn't ready to face that, you know, Chris had a lifelong disability. Yeah. That's interesting that your, I mean, your husband had, I mean, I don't know to what extent it's just like that book was so helpful or your husband, that's just his personality and he was being there for you. <laughs> but I mean, it's not yeah. like, is that still, I don't know, is that book totally outdated at this point or is that still a book that, that people find helpful? It's been updated many, many times. So I do know it's still out there. Um, Down Syndrome, A New Parent's Guide. by Wood, It's published through Woodbine House, which has a huge selection of books about Down Syndrome. It's wonderful. So it is out there. Um, and that is the way my husband works. When he wants to know something, he dives deep headfirst and gets all of the information. And um, he comes back up and he goes, okay, we're good. Yeah. And he's educated. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, I'm a good, good partner to have, especially in a situation like that one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I run from um, my um, kind of the way I operate is I'm in I either do flight or fight mode. <laughs> so uh-huh. when the geneticist was telling me all that, I do remember arguing with her. Um, and so at the time I was in, you know, I was in fight mode because I'm and I said, that can't be true. What you're telling me. Are you really serious? And and I was a little bit defensive. Um, and then flight mode is me just wanting to run from having, you know, that, that, that disability diagnosis, not wanting to run from my son, but just wanting to run and not get any, you know, just keep all information away from me. So it was great that my husband was there to kind of like intervene during those times. Yeah. What were those 10 days like waiting for that, those results and that final diagnosis and who gave that to you? Was that the genetic counselor who you hope never to see again. I know it wasn't the pediatrician <laughs> who you definitely didn't want to see again. <laughs> right, right. So what what was another to me was a, a blessing in disguise was Chris was in the NICU. So he did have surgery within, gosh, I think it's within 48 hours. It might, I'm sure it was less than that, um, that of having, you know, being born. He did get his intestinal blockage fixed. Mm-hmm. And so those 10 days were just being in the NICU with him and continuing the bonding. Cause I had bonded immediately to him. Um, but I just continued that I lived there, um, for those, you know, so those first 10 days I was there and I wasn't even thinking about down syndrome. I was thinking about, okay, the, uh, fees that we need to get for him to get better, those kind of things. And then, um, I didn't even realize 10 days had gone by and who gave me the diagnosis was my obstetrician. Hmm. He wanted to give me the diagnosis, but he did say to me, I am doing this and um, I'm getting, you know, um, a lot of flack from the genetic counselor because she said it was her job to give you the diagnosis. And he said, but I wanted to be the one to give you this thing, you know, to give you the results of the, um, of the blood test, because, um, I just, he just, he did it from a place of empathy mm-hmm. and love for our family. And so when he said it, um, the way he said it, he was just, I think my husband was also there. He just sat with us. He put his arm around me and he said, it's, it's confirmed. Yeah. And he says, and you guys are going to be the best parents. And I told him, you know, I said, thank you for being the one that did this. And he said, well, he said, I'm going to get in trouble, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of how it worked out. Yeah. Um, and did so some children with Down syndrome have heart defects, but it sounds like that was not the case for, for Christopher, right? Like once he had that initial surgery, um, did he have other medical issues that you were concerned about immediately? No. So the blockage was the only was the only um, medical issue that he had at the time. Um, and I'm trying to think he, he it felt like he was there for maybe two months. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, a lot longer. But then what happened was he did get a hernia from the surgery site. Okay. 
So then he had to go back in. They fixed the hernia. And so it, that might have been what prolonged his surgery. But those were the only two. Um, the, actually, the hernia was the only Down syndrome related medical condition that he had at okay. Um, and how did how did your friends and family react to this diagnosis? And I think you weren't you weren't even planning necessarily on having children. You'd been told that you couldn't have children, so this was like a surprise in multiple ways, right? Yes, yeah. So my husband and I married very young. Um, we were just we dated through high school, and then we're like, let's get married. <laughs> so uh. we just got married. <laughs> so we married at eighteen. I was not planning on having children. Um, six months in, six months into my marriage, I was told that I couldn't have children that I, due to a very retroverted uterus. So um, I do know that that's outdated information. They determined that that is now not the case. Women with retroverted uteruses can still get pregnant. So, but Chris was conceived at the age of twenty. Um, but I had my husband, who um, who was and who still is my best friend, and my parents, and I had a large network of high school friends at the time. I just, you know, just gotten out of high school two years before. Um, but they reacted by giving me this whole Harvard, this great big Harvard onesie set, socks and the hat. And, and they just said, you know, they wrote in a note, we don't care what you've been told. We know that he will achieve greatness. Um, that was extremely helpful to me and my state of grieving. It actually kind of, I started seeing the other side of the grieving process that pop out of it. Yeah. What did you, um, you know, once you were over that initial shock and kind of coming to grips with the idea that he had Down syndrome, what did you think that that meant for, for his life? Well, I think that that meant once I got started um, looking at the papers, because like the book, I just kind of like flipped through it up like fine, you know, almost <laughs> making myself like fine, I have to read this book about positive information. Uh-huh. <laughs> so once I, once I started reading the book, I got okay, it's not as bad in my head, as I thought it would be. And that um, it because, it, you know, with some, um, I didn't know anyone with Down syndrome. And I know it's because the exclusion of children with Down syndrome in the Catholic Church. So my family was Catholic when I was growing up and there were no children with disabilities um, in my Catholic Church, in the school. I don't even recall seeing anyone with a disability in our whole parish. Mm. Um, Disabilities were not talked about. So the only experience I had with people with Down syndrome was seeing a group of them at the bus stop every morning. And I remember that that was the first image that I thought when I was told Chris may have Down syndrome, I just pictured him standing with that group of other individuals. And that's what really upset me. And I kept crying. And since I had never had contact with anyone, I made the assumption, the assumption that he would never go to school, you know, because I didn't see kids there, Mm -hmm. that he would not be involved in his community. He would not join scouts or go to school dances or graduate or get married. So I grieved all of that for him. I wasn't at all sad for myself. But I was sad that Chris would not have an, an, a happy quality of life. Yeah. Um, and then do you, it's interesting to me that you say, like, specifically within the Catholic Church. Um, do you think that that was something kind of like unique or specific to the Catholic Church, just cut it, kind of cut across all different sectors of society, um, in, like in that, in that decade, that it just was less common for people with disabilities to be integrated in any way? That's a great question. I... Um... I know it, it, I, I, it feels like it was more so in the Catholic Church because I remember when I was, um, and I'll talk about that later, when I was working at the Down Syndrome Association of Greater Cincinnati, that there were lots and lots of families from many different parishes who were trying to fight and advocate to get their child with Down Syndrome included in the parish with all their other children. Yeah. So I do know that, that had always been an issue. And I do know that they are making strides today where more parishes are including children with disabilities. So we have a long way to go. And it does feel like um, now that I, now that I'm thinking about on the whole, um, you know, religion or faiths or things like that, or churches, there is the, a disconnect between children with special needs, uh, disabilities, and the children who do not have disabilities who want to go to the same church, there is a disconnect mm-hmm. yeah. where the churches aren't. Um, it's either the manpower or the volunteers or something where there's um, they're not able to do as much outreach as they want to do to that community. Right. So that's still, yeah, there's still um, some lagging behind when it comes to um, religion and children with 
disabilities. Yeah. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. We love making patient stories, and we love that we are able to provide it to you without ads or influence from corporate sponsorships, and we would really like to keep it that way. If you'd like to support our podcast, please donate to Patient Stories at greygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com forward slash podcast forward slash donate. So what has the situation actually been like in terms of Christopher's opportunities to, to go to school and to be more integrated? And how has just caring for him in general been similar or different from what you expected? Well, caring for Christopher has been quite different from parenting a typical child with Down syndrome. Um, I would have loved to have had a child with, I would have loved for Chris to have just had Down syndrome. But my Christopher has a few different diagnoses that have affected his quality of life. So to reiterate, if Chris would have just had Down syndrome, he would have gone to his local neighborhood um, school middle school, high school, he would have been an engaging, funny, empathetic student. He would have been a wonderful friend. He would have graduated high school and participated in post-secondary programs at our local university. I know he would have. He would have become part of that college scene. He would have transitioned to an apartment either by himself or with a roommate, you know, and with supports if needed. Uh, I also know that he would have contributed to his community by either gainful employment or volunteering where he was needed. I can see Chris doing all of that if he didn't have severe anxiety and autism. So because of the severe effect of those two disorders, Chris receives 24-7 care at a residential facility just about 15 minutes from us. He requires many staff to help care for him. Um, but then again, I just I just want to make it known that that is not indicative of Down syndrome. It's not a common characteristic. Some folks with Down syndrome do have a dual diagnosis, and sometimes that diagnosis, dual diagnosis is autism, but not okay. to Chris's degree. Yeah, so different from what you expected, but also for very different reasons. <laughs> like at birth, you know, you were given the yes, diagnosis absolutely. of Down syndrome, and your husband read that book in four hours. But then, those when did you realize that he had that anxiety and that autism? That that kind of came out that those were additional issues that you were all going to have to deal with. It was around, I'd say, around seven years old. I just noticed him doing things differently from other children with Down syndrome. So he was doing a mm-hmm. lot of self-stimulation, um, so, and they call self-stimming. He was, um, he could just, you know, um, play with a toy and rock it back and forth in his hand for hours. Um, he would um, kind of concentrate on things or obsess over things. And it was very hard to pull him out of that. And we would even try, you know, giving him five, you know, in five minutes, we have to transition to this. And it was not working. Um, we noticed that he really responded well to weighted blankets, to brushing on his skin. Um, when he noticed he was very sensitive, he loved, he had a very heavy sensory diet, which means he needed things like, um, you know, he needed us to massage him just to keep him, um, so that just the, that he could just even manage to go out with us to somewhere, to like to the grocery store. So it would be a lot of sensory prep before and then afterward he would need to de-stress. Um, and we just noted that started happening at about seven and about 14 uh, at age 14, I don't know if it was also a combination of hormones, but he kind of just went catatonic um, and he needed to be hospitalized and then he needed acute behavioral um, therapy in a, in, a, in a hospital a few hours away. Um, so he was there for quite a few number of years. And then and when he was 17, we were able to bring him back to a facility here near our home. So it's been a, yeah. a very long journey with him. With those, with those two issues. And you have another son, Koei, who's now 24, so just three years younger. Was that, was that a planned pregnancy or was that a surprise? And were you, were you concerned about the possibility of, you know, Down syndrome or autism or how did you, how did, how did that pregnancy go for you? Yeah. So I think I was, yeah, it was not planned, but it, it it was a very um, happy surprise there. So we were like, okay, great. I'm pregnant again. Um, and so this, you know, cause once we had Chris, um, yeah, cause I, you know, I had made, I did make the choice that we were going to be a childless couple, um, that I was not going to have children. But the minute I found out I was pregnant with Chris, I'm like, wow, 
the, the love is so deep and wide. I had no idea I could love someone as much as I love this baby. And so, and the same thing happened when I was pregnant with Cody. And I do remember, um, I was also very, very sick with Cody, but then I do know that it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with Down syndrome. Um, but, um, well, then again, but t- yeah, I think about it, wait, he did have Down syndrome. But I do remember thinking um, that he, my chances were a little bit higher, but I, I just knew, I'm like, there's, that's completely, to me, I didn't, I was going to be very, very rare that he would have Down syndrome. So I wasn't really mm-hmm. worried about that at all. And I was a lot sicker with Cody. Um, and so I had a home health nurse the entire pregnancy, but I do remember, I will, I will be honest. As soon as he was born, I asked my husband, I said, does he have down syndrome? Yeah. (laughs) So he said, no. And I said, okay. Um, and so, um, Cody's medical records, it's funny, not really funny, but it's just, it's very, it's very interesting. Chris's medical records. He has been to our local children's hospital about 17 times. Um, Cody is so healthy. His medical record is only one page long (laughs) and he is able to be children's hospital has used him as a, like a candidate. He's the healthy mean against all of the other, you know, when they're trying to do testing trials. (laughs) So they were able to use him because he was one of the healthiest children they had ever seen. Right. So there's, yeah. And what, um, what is Christopher and Cody's relationship like? They actually, and this is also not at all indicative of Down syndrome because um, there was a survey about siblings of who have a child with Down syndrome in the family. The siblings are so very happy that the child is with Down syndrome is in their family and they have a very strong sibling bond. Uh-huh. But because of Christopher's behaviors, um, Cody and Chris are not able to have a relationship. Yeah. So Cody does feel like he is an only child Mm -hmm. Um, with Chris not being able to be, you know, in the home or part of the family. Chris does not come home for holidays. He's not able to, um, he's not able to do that. So it's just the three of us. So it, it, there is a huge disconnect because of those other um, because of the anxiety and because of the autism. Right, right. And I know, um, so I want to ask you about the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network. But before I get to that, I know you worked for 11 years with the Down Syndrome Association of Greater Cincinnati. Um, so I'm curious about your work with them, how you got involved, and then also how how it was how it's been for you to be involved with, you know, other families who have children with Down syndrome, given that your experience with Christopher sounds like it's it's actually quite unique. Um, and you're dealing with yeah. you know, pretty different issues from from a lot of other parents who have children with Down syndrome. Yeah. So I got involved in the DSAGC a year after Chris was born. Um, I got involved because I was bored. <laughs> My husband is a firefighter. So he only works twice a week. And when Chris was a baby, he was so easy to take care of. It was just wonderful. And I decided to find something part-time. So I was hired as the DSAGC secretary back in 1993. And by the end of my 11 years, I was doing programmatic work. And the majority of that was running our early matters program. So what I was doing was I was providing information, resources, and support to new families whose child had received a diagnosis of Down syndrome. It was a perfect fit because I had gone through that, you know, years before. So um, I just um, did active listening and just, you know, talked with them. And so I, I walked a lot of families through that process. And did you see like a lot of uh, mothers or parents who had pretty negative experiences with getting that diagnosis like you did? Or did, did you hear from a lot of parents who'd had a better experience with, with how that information was delivered? Yes, there, um, I did notice that it was pretty negative back then. So it was still, and, and you just say, you know, I'm thinking the early nineties, the act that actually was a long time ago. It doesn't feel like yeah. it to, to me, but, um, it does, but back then it wasn't, um, it was, uh, I do know it was a lot more negative than today because today, I don't know. There's just more um, this feeling of acceptance and people are, there's a lot more education on Down syndrome. Folks with Down syndrome actually can go to the community school and they can be involved in everything else that your children are involved in. And they're just, they're they're capable of way more than we thought they were way back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. 
um, there were such limitations on these on these folks. And those limitations actually here just recently in the last maybe 15 to 20 years have been lifted. So the diagnosis, kind of what I got, my diagnosis was negative. Um, a majority of them were negative back then. And then as far as like when it's dealing, when I get a call from an expectant parent, it went, I know, um, in my role of working for the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network, those are more negative. Um, but we can go into those, you know, when we talk about the program. But So, yeah, okay. tell me about what was the jump for you from working with the DSAGC, um, Association of Greater Cincinnati, to to working with, um, or so didn't you, did you actually start the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network? No. So the, um, the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network was founded in 1982 under the umbrella of the DSAGC. About so one year after the DSAGC was founded, the DSAGC was founded in 1981. The the NDSAN was founded by David and Robin Steele. They had a passion for adoption and they had a passion for children with Down syndrome, and they just connected those two passions when they adopted a little girl with Down syndrome in the early 70s. So that led them down the path of Down syndrome adoption and then forming the NDSAN. Um, and so in 2010, I was asked to come in and kind of breathe online or mm-hmm. internet life into the program. So I created a website, a Facebook page. Um, we then created brochures and a booklet that we give to medical professionals at no cost. Um, Robin had all of the program's work on paper. And what I did was I, I created that database um, and the registry. And it allows us to now find families for a situation in less than five minutes. Um, in two, four, 2014, Robin retired, and in 2015, I was asked to become the director okay. of the NDSAN. So, so what um, what is your work like there? Do you have do you do a lot of work where you are reaching out to physicians, hospitals, organizations, or at this point, is it more patients who are like googling online, like having gotten this diagnosis and getting in touch with you? Yeah, most patients find us on Google. So they're not given the option of adoption um, when they are given the diagnosis. So they literally Google Down syndrome adoption and we're the first resource that pops up. So yay for Google. (laughs) So I I really appreciate that. Um, Close to 90% of our patients receive a positive NIPS result. Then confirmation of Down syndrome via amniocentesis or CVS. The other 10% or so are either postnatal diagnosis or their child is older. Um, so that's how, that's how it comes in. And, and what's incredible is they'll contact me and they've either been, um, what'll happen is they'll be at a point of desperation. They'll be like, they'll have gotten the phone call in the car. Mm -hmm. So they literally pull over. I've had people pull over the side of the highway. So I'm like, where are you? (laughs) And I can hear the truck and they're like, I'm on the highway because I just got a phone call from my genetic counselor telling me the baby had down syndrome. And they said, you can go ahead and just head to um, a clinic for termination. But we, I pulled over because I wanted to make sure, was there any other options that I had? So wait, um, so, so, the one thing so I, they're yeah. getting a call. So, I mean, it's different with every genetic counselor and hospital situation, but usually in genetic counseling, like we, especially when there's results like that, that we're expecting, there's kind of a discussion <laughs> about how a patient would like to receive results. Oh, yeah. They'd like to come in or to receive results, or if we call, like what would be a good time to call? So, I mean, it's kind of shocking to hear that you're getting calls from people who just like get that call as they're, as they're driving and then just told like where to go for a termination. Is that, do you get the sense that that's based on a discussion they've had previously with a genetic counselor where they indicated that that's what they wanted or just that that assumption is made that that's what they're going to want to do? I'm, I'm thinking that they're, they, they did not make that assumption because they were, um, so when they're calling you, they're in such a state of grief and they're crying their eyes out because they're like, they, they only told me about, you know, termination. So I have, because my baby has Down syndrome. Um, so I have to terminate and what, you know, so they don't know why. And they say, why is that? You know, that's the only thing they told me. And I, so I kind of say, okay, let's, um, let's slow the train down. I, you know, in my head, I'm like, okay, we got to slow the train down because they yeah. are just devastated. Number one, that their baby has a disability um, and it's okay for them to grieve. Absolutely. 
but they um, were not given any other options. So the because the NDSAN, we take this, our stance is actually pro-information. So that means that if termination is going to be given as an option, patients have the right to know all of their options. So, you know, parenting and adoption should be included. Um, and yeah, and their experience. So with most of the patients that contact me is they do usually get it by phone. Most of the time, these phone calls occur during office hours of the genetic counselor. So 99% of the time, the expectant mom is not with her significant other at the time of diagnosis. Um, she's either working at her job. I've had that a lot where they're told, you know, they're at the office. I've had them answer a call during a meeting <laughs> or she's out in public. I've had um, moms leave carts full of groceries because they just can't, no, nothing can be, they can't even function and they just go straight to their car or they're driving and they pull over um, and they're told pretty matter of factly, the test result was positive for Down syndrome. And so, um, you know, we, we need to remember that they are receiving this diagnosis in a space that's not conducive to receiving life altering news. Right. Um, and the grieving process starts as soon as the diagnosis is given uh, for most patients. So for most patients, it's, yeah, when they, when they contact me, the most of the patients, the option of termination is given, but not the option of parenting and adoption. Um, now, I have heard that some genetic counselors will have a follow-up appointment with the family. Um, and again, termination is given, but then there's no other options. Um, and the hearse is already, is, I mean, kind of like you said, the grieving process starts when you give that diagnosis. So, <laughs> you yeah. know, that like, I feel like some damage has already been done if that's, that's you know, the timing and the, the content that they're given at that, at that time of that phone call. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I always thought the ideal situation would be, you know, after, after counseling, I've been doing this for, I've been counseling folks um, through the NDSAN for close to nine years. So the ideal situation would be, you know, when a NIPS blood draw is scheduled, um, an appointment to talk about the results should be scheduled as well. And if the NIPS results come back negative, negative, then they can just call the patient with the results and cancel the appointment. I just don't know how hard mm -hmm. that is, but it, but um, if the NIPs come back positive, you already have the parents at that scheduled appointment, you know, you're not going to cancel it. They're there in person. So what you've just done is you've created a space because remember, go back to flashball memory, flashball moment here. You've created a space where the parents will be able to openly grieve together upon receiving the diagnosis. You can give them their options in person now. Um, and then with that, you can include um, information on their local parent group. Your local parent group would be happy to give you, you know, brochures. Um, and then you can, and I would be happy to send you our booklet again, it's at no charge. And so if you as a genetic counselor are wondering also how to give that diagnosis, um, the Down Syndrome Diagnosis Network and Letter Case, they're both companies that have great resources that will help medical professionals in that, that diagnosis yeah. space there. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's funny to think about for me, like when I, when I was working full-time in OB was really before NIPS existed. Like it was just starting as I was leaving full-time OB working in a hospital. Um, and, you know, at that time, something like the quad screen, yes, it meant someone was higher risk, but it wasn't very close to a diagnosis. Um, amniocentesis results, mm -hmm. at least in that setting, we were always giving in person. Um, and I, I guess NIPS, I could see like maybe is kind of like a, like a new, like logistical challenge for hospitals in a sense where it is a screening test that's done really routinely. Um, and it's negative for so many, right. but then it's so close to a diagnostic test <laughs> that, that it's, that the, you know, yeah. The, yeah. the same setup of just calling to say your screening test is positive and yes, you need follow-up testing. This is probably going to be positive and probably isn't right. It depends, it depends on a lot of factors. Right. Um, do you, and are you usually yeah. you're getting calls from people when they get the NIPs and they're waiting for confirmatory testing, kind of in that in-between stage? Yes. Yeah. So, so, cause, and it would happen with me, um, you know, the, the um, house pediatrician mm -hmm. said your son is a candidate, even though it wasn't a NIPs test. But when you just even put that thought in, I mean, it's just, and with the internet, the families are like, all they hear is Down syndrome. Um, they, they immediately start grieving, even they, they're going to forget the part where you said, 
may have Down syndrome. This yeah. was just a screening test. <laughs> so that piece kind of kind of disappears and they just hear they just focus on the two words Down syndrome. And then they're off to races with, you know, looking on the Internet and Googling and, and who knows what kind of outdated information that right. they're going to find on the Internet. So it is it, and you're right. It is just um, a screening test. But um, and, and so that's when I do um, hear from families. Um, I do hear from them when they're in between um, the screening test and their the amnio, mm-hmm. I think, has been scheduled. So yeah. that's so disappointing to hear <laughs> as, a, as a genetic counselor. And I mean, I hope there's some ascertainment bias where you're happening to hear from people who are like getting this news in a terrible way, but, um, you know, pretty, pretty unacceptable for so many patients to go through, to go through receiving the results in this way. Yeah. With the patients who, who call you and talk to you, um, are most of them, I mean, it sounds like, you know, they're kind of like grieving and grasping at straws, but, um, are they ten? do you find that overall they're thinking like termination isn't a good option, but I also can't parent this child. So I'm looking for a third option. Um, or what, where are they coming from and what kind of conversations do you end up having with them? Yeah, that, um, so when, and, and an expectant or new parent, they they call me. Um, so that's what happens. So say they've gone through, they've not gotten um, the best. Um, they, they get the phone call on the highway, and you know they only have they're only given one option, and so they pull over. Um, and so what I do though is I know that they've started the grief process, and I just sit and I said, listen, you're grieving. Um, you may not know it, you may not realize it, but I know it. I'm a parent. I grieve and we're just going to sit with you in grief. And I let that grief, they just get it out and they just vomit it all over me. And, um, and I sit with them and then they get it out and then they, mm-hmm. that's when they say, okay, what is this? What are we doing? What's going on? <laughs> they kind of have a clear space. Mm-hmm. And so I say, well, let's talk about what Down syndrome is. Do you even know what it is? And a lot of them say, I have no idea. And I'll say, okay, I, I didn't either. And, you know, I just keep going back to letting them know they're not alone because you do feel like, you know, even, you know, I know genetic counselors, you all know how many patients you've told the diagnosis to, but each of those people have never probably met anyone else who's gotten that diagnosis. So you do feel very, very alone. So I just keep reiterating. Yep. I remember that feeling. And so we talk about, no, here, I'm going to tell you about Down syndrome. And so I give them some, um, some great resources where it's very simple to read. It's not too much. And then they ask me questions, you know, wait, well, will my child be able to go to school? Absolutely. You know, um, and I'm very realistic. And you had talked about with my son, it's so different. Mm-hmm. Well, the good thing is, is um, I am able to pull my, like my grieving experience, you know, from when I had my son and early on he did go to school and it was wonderful, wonderful. So I do pull pieces of my story that are most common with the Down syndrome story. Um, They don't need to know that, you know, when they call me and they're grieving, they don't need to know that he spent 30 days in a psychiatric unit. There's no reason. Yeah. Not not helpful. <laughs> right. Right. It's not helpful. And and I was given and not relevant. Not relevant, absolutely. And I was given a yeah. statistic that he is one of only six other children in the world with Down syndrome with behaviors as severe as his. So mm-hmm. I know the yeah. odds. So I yeah, so I pull the stories that are that are the ninety-five percent common commonality out. Right. So we do that. So we we talk about what Down syndrome is and they say, okay. And they're hearing it because they're, you know, they've gone through that initial grief shock and they hear it and they go, okay, well, what would it look like to parent? And I'll say, you know, ask me anything you want. And not only do, can they talk to me, but we actually have parents on the list that I have of parents who have called us who said that they would love to connect with other parents and these parents who have called us have either gone on to make an adoption plan or gone on to parent their child. So I'll say, hey, you can talk to this mom whose child is now four. She made an adoption plan for her at birth and she's four years out. So would you like to talk with her? And you can talk to this family whose child they decided to parent and he's two years old 
and you can talk to them on how their story has been. So then we, we do that. And then at that point, you know, they'll say to me, um, you know, when they decide to make an adoption plan, they'll say, okay, thank you so much for the information, but I, I just know where I am in my space and I am out of love. I would love to make an adoption plan for my child. So then we start the adoption process. And you have, you, so you have a database of families who are waiting and eager to adopt a child with Down syndrome. And it, you have about 40 families in your registry. Is that right? Yes. We have 40 families at any one time. Um, and that's, that's like, it just stays at that number because we have families then who will um, be chosen for a situation. So they'll go off, but then somebody, so we're consistently getting new families and consistently families are going off the registry after they adopt a child. And those so are, it sits at 40. Okay. And those are families. They're not just, they, it's not just like they've like signed up for your mailing list, but they've actually like gone through a process and been approved by state agencies to adopt a child with Down syndrome. Is that right? Yes. So they have gone through the process, which takes about three months. It's very hard. It's stressful in the family. They have to basically open their home, their life, everything, all of their secrets, to a social worker um, through an agency that's licensed in their state. And they go through this three month process of getting um, uh, physicals and um, they disclose all medicines they're on. They have to disclose their income to debt ratio, um, everything. And how the square footage of their home, how many fire alarms do they have, all this incredible stuff. So it takes three months for them to walk through this process and then they are approved but not only are they approved to adopt a child, they uh, they made sure to go the extra step to approve to um, adopt a child with Down syndrome. So that means they've joined their local parent group or they have some type of experience. Um, a lot of our families that the either one or one parent might be a special education teacher, uh, one parent might be a speech th- uh, speech pathologist. So there's a connection usually. Um, yeah, you're already answering like my next question was like, where, you know, what motivates these families? Like, where are they coming from? So usually they do, they do have some connection to, to Down syndrome. Yeah. So the families who are on our registry do have some type of connection to Down syndrome. So they'll have, uh, maybe I'll have an adoptive parent who has a sibling with Down syndrome, or it's something they're job related. They're a speech therapist, physical therapist, um, they're a special education teacher, or they just have a special connection. They babysat a neighbor who had Down syndrome. So there is some connection. And then there is a small group of families who say, I don't have a connection. I am going to learn. I feel greatly called to adopt a child with Down syndrome. And so they get involved in the community and their Down syndrome group and start gaining that experience needed. Yeah. Um, I think I, I think from the Lucky Few podcast, um, I heard you talk about example of, you know, but like, we, you talk to a few people who think they want to adopt a child with Down syndrome. They're like, do you know what Down syndrome is? And it's like, oh, they're always happy. They're always in a good mood. <laughs> you kind of yes, like you still yes. filter out those people who who come in with like, you know, mis, misconceptions. Um, yes, yes. So I, I do that. I have, um, I'll get quite a few uh, ladies who are, they might have a grandchild or a great grandchild. They might be in their 60s and They'll just call me and say, I want to adopt a Downs kid. Mm-hmm. And so I say, hold on. <laughs> so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to learn proper um, person first language. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so I've had the conversation. Do you know what Down syndrome is? Oh, yes, they're angels straight from heaven. And I say, well, I'm going to refer you to updated, <laughs> actual updated information on what Down syndrome is. Um, and then, you know, so, yeah, we do. I, I do make sure that all of our families either have a connection, but I do make sure that they're updated and they have local um, updated. Coming experience. from a place of reality. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know that much about the adoption world, but um, I think that just in general in adoption, gender, race, ethnicity, age are all important factors um, in how adoptable someone is. Like it's easier to adopt a child who's black and it's harder to adopt a child who's white. And there's just all of these kind of racial preferences that play in in kind of an icky way. Uh, yeah. 
So, you know, and for a variety of reasons, like maybe like some frank racism, but also just, you know, if you have people who have the means to adopt a child and, you know, upper income and like they happen to be white and people want um, children who physically look more like their family or blend in. So do you run into some of those similar issues or, you know, for, you know, when I was working in OBGYN and I was at a public hospital, I had, you know, two white patients in two years. <laughs> so oh, I'm just wow. wondering, you know, for those, for those patients who might be getting this diagnosis, but their child's going to be black or brown, like, do they have as many options of being able to adopt that child out? Well, the good thing is an overwhelming amount of families on our registry who want to adopt a dog with Down syndrome, they want to, they are open to any ethnicity or any race. Um, and we have a few families who prefer to adopt girls. Um, and what's interesting is most of the situations that we have are boys. But I really do think that's just a coincidence yeah. because it's really when an expectant family wants to make an adoption plan, they just say it's down, it's down syndrome. I don't think I will be able to parent a child with, with a disability. So mm -hmm. that's um, now what I do wish we had more on the flip side is I do wish we had more families of color on our registry. So um, we've trying, you know, we've been just reaching out to everyone. Uh, we mostly have our families on our registry are Caucasian. Um, but they are open to, like I said, they're open to any ethnicity or race, but I would love to have more families of color also become adoptive families. Yeah. And I think, I think I've heard you say on the lucky few podcast and also in the blog post that you wrote for the great genetics news corner, which we'll include in the show notes that of the patients who contact you about half, um, do you actually go ahead with adopting the child out, giving their child with Down syndrome up for adoption, and about half choose to keep the child and parent the child with Down syndrome. Um, I'm wondering mm -hmm. if, I, if I'm remembering that right, and also if you talk to parents who consider that option of giving a child up for adoption, and if, if you know like how many of those actually do ter choose to instead terminate the pregnancy or have an abortion. Yeah, so I, and I use close to half because I do have that small window of pocket or pocket of folks that I never hear from again, right. um, or folks that have said, yes, I'm terminating. Um, but I do notice that there are folks when they decide to terminate, there's one other extenuating circumstance outside of Down syndrome. Um, it could be cultural. So I, I have had that. So if they've terminated, it's, you know, I, they, they, they say, thank you so much for the information, but because of my culture, I just can't do this. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's, you know, uh, or their age, um, if they're extremely young and they just say, thank you for the information, but I am, I just can't. And I'm being pressured by everybody mm -hmm. in my family that I, I can't continue the pregnancy. So there's usually just one other extenuating circumstance that leads to termination, what I'm noticing. Um, and then there is that pocket that I, of folks that I don't ever hear from again, they've either terminated or they've gone on to parent and they don't want to revisit the chapter where they contacted me about a, um, making an adoption plan for their child. So they're kind of just closing that chapter and they're continuing with parenting. Right. So. Um, yeah. And I wonder, so, I mean, you're on, you're relating to these families like in such a different way, you know, in a different setting from a genetic counselor in a prenatal clinic. But I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are on both how and when a genetic counselor should bring up the option of adoption. I had when I was in grad school, one of my one of my classmates was really passionate about this issue. Yeah. Um, and she did she did her thesis related to this topic. I was actually reaching out to her and was like, can you send me that again? I think she developed an information sheet just to encourage genetic counselors to definitely mention adoption as an option, mm -hmm. which I think happens sometimes, definitely not routinely. Um, but, you know, as, as much as genetic counselors deal with these diagnoses a lot, I think that, you know, most of the time, and NIPS has probably changed this a little bit, mm -hmm. but most of the time we're talking to patients about an increased risk for Down syndrome. And most genetic counselors probably don't have that many times, so really not that much experience when they're actually saying, like, yes, this is the diagnosis, you know, because it's still like overall it's not 
that common. Correct. Um, I mean, I can, I can even remember like one time when I was talking to a patient who I think was just, you know, higher risk for Down syndrome based on the quad screen. We didn't even have NIPS at the time. Um, but, you know, some patients like I think are very much like, well, obviously I need to know more the next step um, and we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And other patients are already right there. Like you might as well have said <laughs> your child has Down syndrome where they're really imagining themselves yeah. in that situation. And it was a, a patient like that, you know, who was already like, oh my goodness, all these options sound impossible. And like, like when I mentioned adoption as an option, her reaction was like, oh, like that would be like the worst. Like that to her was like kind of the most unthinkable, you know, to yeah. go through with a pregnancy that wasn't a pregnancy that you wanted or no longer wanted. And then the idea of like giving a child away, like, like, you know, that reaction was just like, so it was like so hard for her. I feel like that I'd even put that out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've, and I've had that. So, well, I had somehow, so the booklets that we created for medical professionals, and like I said, we give them free of charge to genetic counselors. Those, we never want those to end up in the hospital packets. They never, we never want them to be um, given at a postnatal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it, it's just a different, the way the booklet is laid out, I, I don't know. It's just adoption should not be talked about postnatally when giving the diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, but when you're giving the prenatal diagnosis, and this is my rule of thumb, you know, with genetic counselors mm-hmm. or my rule of thumb ask for genetic counselors is if a genetic counselor is going to talk about just one option. And if the only option they could talk about is termination, we believe it's the right of the family to talk about adoption. And if you're, if you don't want to talk about parenting, that's fine. But if, if you had our booklet, the booklet in there talks about parenting. Now, when should you even talk about our booklet? So like I said, if you are going to um, give the, give the uh, option of termination, then giving the option of adoption is, um, I think that's completely acceptable when you, when you talk about those two options, if you're going to talk about termination, um, if you don't talk about termination and you just say, you know, your child, this is, you know, with a positive amniocentesis or CVS result and your child does have Down syndrome. And I would like to give you some more information. I'd like to answer any questions that you may have. If they're giving you, if they're saying things to you during that, um, that consult session where they're saying, I can't do this. I don't think I can do this. This isn't happening. I, we need this. How do I, you know, if they keep using these kind of things where I can't do this language, mm-hmm. um, which like when, when, when I was, when they gave me Chris's diagnosis, that didn't even occur to me. And I think um, genetic counselors who are listening to this will go, yeah, they usually are just grieving. You know, mm-hmm. that might, if you're not going to talk about termination, you probably don't need to give them my booklet. They're probably just grieving. And um, the diagnosis of their child, and they're probably going to go on to parent. But if they're using the kind of language of, like I said, I can't do this. I don't know if we can do this. I don't know how to get out of this type of language. Then you can say, you know, if you like, here's a booklet for you. If you want to take a look at it and you could just hand it to them and Mm -hmm. kind of subtly and you can do it that way. Um, Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, because as much as, you know, as genetic counselors, we should be giving patients all of their options. Yeah, Um, I think, you know, probably one reason there's a bias toward mentioning termination and neglecting to mention adoption is, you know, it's funny when you say, like, if you're not mentioning termination, but I think, you know, it, it's a question of when it's mentioned, but it's it's always mentioned. And I think there's probably that bias just because there's that medical legal liability too. Yes. Um, yeah. Where, you know, it's like, a, you know, part of part of a genetic counselor being employed by a hospital is just, you know, like legal, legal, legal liability for, for the hospital. Yes. <laughs> I, I would, I would have patients, I had a lot of patients, you know, from other countries that weren't so familiar with the U.S. medical system and like kind of coming in and feeling like, you know, they were going to be told to do a certain test or to make a certain decision. And we're like pleasantly surprised to hear that, you know, the options were up to them, but that the hospital, the onus was on them to make sure that they knew what their options were. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. 
but, you know, I mean, with termination being one of those, but, you know, adoption should be, you know, there, there probably, there's not that same legal liability and not giving the option, but it's, you know, definitely an option that patients should be presented with. Like, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's, um, I think once um, you become, if, you know, if you get more than just one or two of these diagnoses and you're right, I hear about them all the time. So I feel like in my world, I'm like, oh, they must happen all the time. <laughs> But you're right. Genetic counselors, they may only give it, give that diagnosis once, Yeah. you know, a year maybe. So, but I do know that it, it does get easier, even if it is just once a year, you go, okay, I remember this and now, and then you'll remember, go, okay, wait, I'm going to phrase it this way. Mm-hmm. And, and again, like I had said, um, Down syndrome diagnosis network and letter case have ways that you can give that diagnosis. Yeah. So that's very helpful, but you'll be able to pick up on what they say, on their body language, um, things like that, um, where they'll go, okay, I think we can do this. If, if they say, well, I think we can do this, <laughs> then, yeah. <laughs> then yeah, you give them, you know, a brochure from your local, their local parent group. And, um, you know, and so it's, it is, and, and, and I, I really, I don't give genetic counselors enough credit. That's really hard. I mean, it would be really hard to give that news to someone that's going to change their life. Yeah. You know, and you're what you're telling them is something about their child who they love so deep and wide. And it's a disability that is lifelong and they will not recover from right. it. I mean, it is so it's a big burden. It is, it is hard, but that's also what we sign up for. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's our job. You know, that's part of what, what we're trained and paid to do. So, you know, it's, it's the onus is on us to do, to do a good and to do a better job of it. What do you wish that people understood about? Uh, adoption and just um, adoption of children with with Down syndrome? I wish that, you know, when an expectant or new parent decides to make an adoption plan, they are making that decision out of pure and overwhelming love that they have for their child. Um, There's still a stigma with people that they give up their child for adoption um, because, you know, they, they, because they don't love them and nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, the term giving up their child for adoption, it's antiquated and it's not really true in a sense, because these days we use the term making an adoption plan for their child because their child will always be their child, always, even after they place the child with another family, that is their child always. And even after we educate families on what Down syndrome is and on what parenting a child with Down syndrome may look like, they will thank me for that information but they are so self-aware and knowing that they feel like they do not have the means either physically or emotionally to care lifelong for a child with a disability. So they make the decision to place their child with an adoptive family who has the experience, the deep knowledge, and the knowing that a family has prayed and hoped to adopt a child with Down syndrome. So the birth family, in a nutshell, loves their child so much that they want the best life possible for their child. And that may mean an adoptive family. Yeah. Do you, so I think most adoptions are, are closed adoptions as opposed to open adoptions with contact between um, birth parents and adoptive parents. What's, do you have families where they, where they maintain a relationship? Actually, most now are open. Okay. That used to be, yeah, that used to be um, pretty common that they were closed and they were, um, that's what agencies kind of pushed you and said, oh, just, yeah, just close it. You don't want to have to think about the child Uh again. And years ago, and there were, because that's just the way, I don't know, that's just the way um, the attitude was, was like, just get, um, you know, push it out of your mind, forget about it. And that's the way you'll Mm -hmm. heal um, that wasn't true. <laughs> so we come to find out after doing studies and, and interviewing um, folks who made adoption plans for children that they never heard from again, um, that it, it, it affected them mentally yeah. long term. So it um, because they they had unknowns. yeah. So it's open adoption is now the norm in general, and then also with adoption of children with Down syndrome. It sounds like yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's the norm. We um, we may have one family or two families that are like, um, you know, we want a closed adoption, but we try to educate them and say, well, this is, this is why you need, you know, they may not have received the proper education from their agency. So we, um, refer them to webinars and to professionals that talk to them about making an, um, an adopt, making an open adoption plan 
with the birth family is um, not only do you gain an additional family, I mean, the child, then the adoptee, the child who's been adopted knows that the birth family loves them. So they'll have a relationship with them. So then, you know, if you think about it, you know, like if you had been adopted and you didn't know who your parents were, there's this kind of um, feeling like emptiness or why did they, you know, why did they, did they not love me? Did they not? And so we have all of these unanswered questions. Well, with open adoption, you don't have that anymore. You are, you know, the, the child, the adopted child is deeply loved by both families and they see it. And it's just so much a, a, a way better relationship than it was, um, you know, years ago. That's really beautiful. What? So I'm, I'm so glad I got to talk to you. I've learned so much. And we do have a lot of genetic counselors who listen to this podcast. So I think this is a really great episode for genetic counselors to hear, especially um, for someone who's listening, who's not a genetic counselor, who is like thinking about maybe they have a, you know, a positive NIPS result, or, you know, maybe they're just planning a pregnancy or thinking about those range of possible result, results. What would you want them to know about the potential of a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome? I would just want them to come to the right places. So there are so many sites online. <laughs> and so um, if, they, if, they, if they're listening, I would love for them to come to our website, which I know you'll have listed at the bottom of the podcast. In the show notes. Yeah. And, and, and to, to, that's where we have the most updated, correct information on Down syndrome. But you're also going to get support in that in-between space between the NIPS result and, and you know, deciding if you're going to get an AMDO and things like that. And you can ask us any questions. We're very open, um, we're a very authentic program, and we're just here to sit with, with that family at this time. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.